Disrupting the flow of money into coal, gas and oil is critical to limiting the impacts of climate change. Your bank could be investing billions of dollars into the fossil fuel industry. Bank Australia is an ethical bank that doesn't fund harmful industries. Join us and over 180,000 Australians who have made the switch. Search Bank Australia Solutions. My name is Kate Ashmore and I'm a proud Jar Jar Wurrung person. Today's episode of The Cool Down was recorded on the Gadigal lands of the Aura Nation. Together with Footy for Climate, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. Footy comes from Mangrook, a First Nations game that has been played on these lands, which have been protected and nurtured by Australia's first people for tens of thousands of years. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging for their continued connection to the land, water and culture, and look to their guidance and knowledge as we work towards a more sustainable future. We acknowledge the sovereignty was never ceded. This was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome back to another episode of The Cooldown by Footy for Climate. I'm your host, co-founder of Footy for Climate and occasional St Kilda player, Tom Campbell, recording today on Gadigal Land. On this episode, I sit down with Phil Davis, GWS Giants stalwart and Dr. Rebecca Huntley, an expert in how to talk about climate change. We chat with Phil about his football career at the Giants, his time on the AFL Players Association board and his journey from little interest in climate change to now something that he considers more as an adult. We speak with Rebecca about the youth climate movement how to use a public platform to talk about important topics and tips for having difficult climate conversations. I love this chat with Phil and Rebecca. I hope you enjoy it too. Welcome to The Cooldown. The Cooldown is brought to you by Bank Australia. Phil Davis, welcome to The Cooldown. Tom, it's great to be here. I couldn't believe I got an invite, but it's nice to be here. Oh, mate, we're absolutely wrapped to have you. We start every episode of the, the cool down, you know, acknowledging that we know lots about our players from the footy record. Uh, we know that you were picked 10 in 2008 mm. to the Crows. You're an inaugural captain at GWS. You've played nearly 200 games and you've kicked over five goals in your career. <laughs> That's a good one, that one. <laughs> and you're also the vice president of the AFL Players Association. So, yeah, we've got a couple of, you know, prolific goal kickers here today. Yeah, mate, but what we don't really know so much about is that sort of that backstory, that growing up and, and on the cool down, we really like to get to, you know, stories about our players that, you know, we maybe don't hear all the time. So, you know, growing up in Canberra and then Adelaide, you know, what was life like for young Phil? Yeah, so I was the youngest of four, um, which basically meant I was trying to like get attention for basically most of my childhood. And then when we moved to Adelaide, my sisters stayed in the Eastern States. I went to Sydney. And so it was just my brother and I. So I went to a family of four. Then I started getting a bit more attention, which was fantastic for me. But I guess my whole life, and I talk about it all the time in terms of just my whole life, is all I've really known since I was sort of like six, seven, eight, nine is study and sport. And that's how I filled my life. It was like go to school, play basketball before school or cricket, walk to school, go to school, walk home, playing it till it got dark, dinner, homework. Did that for. 13 years straight of schooling um, and just loved it. Just loved it. Outside all the time, I was never inside. I mean, so many of our players have such a deep connection to community sport and school sport growing up. You know, have you got any like really fond memories of, you know, connection to maybe a local club or or playing the game? Well, I guess my favourite thing was I used to, being so three years younger than my brother, particularly early in my career, I would just go there, play under 10s in the morning and then watch the 11s, 12s, 13s and watch my brother and basically I'd stay full kit I mean full kit boots on and just stand there and just wait and hopefully one of those teams would be one short so then I could play another game 
And, and one of my favorite moments was I got to play a half for my brother. When um, I think it was under 11s, he was under 14s, and they were one short. And I was there, full kit, obviously. How'd you go? Um, I think I got, I kicked a goal, but I think I humiliated my brother because I took the mark, went back, and did the, uh, sorry, the grass toss, the Matthew Lloyd. The Matty Lloyd. Uh, I was very impressionable. It was 2001 ish, I presume. And Lloyd was obviously kicking lots of goals. So I did that, and he was humiliated, but I kicked it. So, um, but no, I just think my connection, I just loved the, you know, just being amongst it and, what I loved about my junior sporting time was the age group above and above that always let you get involved. And if you wanted to do more, you could do more. And they were always very welcoming. And that's probably the thing that I loved the most was that you'd go to school and that was a bit mundane, a bit boring, but just the excitement and the sort of never-ending limits of playing sport, I just loved that so much. How did you feel when, say, you know, it's cricket season and gets washed out yep. and, you know, you don't get to play? Like, how, how was that for, you know, you as a kid? That was the worst thing. So the first thing I did, so you'd be hoping to go to bed on a Friday night with blue skies or anything like that and you check the fork. And the first thing I did every single Saturday morning was get up, was go to the blinds and just peek through and hope for no rain. And the amount of times that I didn't know what to do with my Saturday because I'd get that phone call about an hour before the game was supposed to start washed out. And then when I was in um, when I was in Adelaide particularly because Adelaide's quite warm. So Canberra, very dry. Adelaide dry, but very warm all the time. And until you got to first level sport, get too hot. Mm. So year seven, eight, nine, ten, no, seven, eight, nine when I was playing sort of juniors, I'd have to worry about the forecast again because it was forecasted above 37 degrees, no cricket. And then once you played first, I think it was above 41. So now we're getting really hot. But I lost lots of games of cricket to either too hot or to rain. So that was always a real ruiner of weekends. You talked about, you know, you're either playing sport or you're studying. Um, you know, you, you're on the AFL Players Association board. You're you're sort of widely regarded as one of the, you know, better educated and, you know, probably more intelligent players in our competition, um, really looked to as a leader. Um, but, you know, really interested in your study background and sort of how you've balanced footy and study. Yeah. So my parents have got no idea about Aussie rules. Like it just my dad um, migrated from uh, England when he was 15 played soccer, played cricket. Um, Mum's two brothers played rugby union, um, so she didn't really know anything about Aussie rules. So basically all through school it was always like do the best you can. And so that when the whole – even year 12, mum and dad thought I was no good. A famous quote is Fremantle came over to interview me at home and mum sat in on the interview, dad was away. And they said, do you have any questions? And mum goes, oh, so is Phil like good? Because every time I watch him, he just looks like he just watches and doesn't do anything. So I had no idea about football. So when they they were learning about the draft on the go, they didn't understand what the term was. They'd go to a game and someone be like, oh, so Phil might get drafted. And like, I was no superstar growing up. Like I didn't play 16 state and do any of that stuff. So I sort of got going a bit better, more like my year 11, 12 years. So their whole philosophy was always like, you have to be ready for not football because one, the average career length when we started, Tom, was like three years, three and a half years. It's a bit longer now, but they're like, well, you've got to max out school. So I studied so hard. I did like massive days. I remember year 12 was, I'd do, Monday was uh, North Adelaide training, seniors after school. Tuesday was first cricket. Wednesday was seniors. Thursday was uh, school cricket again. And then Friday, rest day, Night before a game, play cricket all day Saturday. So I just I was staying till eleven PM all of year twelve. 
and getting home at seven, eight, and then there was state training there as well. So, so I ended up getting injured, which actually saved me from some severe sleep deprivation. But so I was always just maxing out. Mm. And so when I started football, I was like, I have to study. A lot of my teammates, the people I got drafted with didn't study, but I was like, I have to study because I might last three years, four years, five years, I'll be 22, 23. And what, five years behind everyone else? I, that was, I was very cognizant of that. So I got into commerce law. I did that at Adelaide Uni for two and a half years, moved to the Giants in Sydney, transferred across to Sydney Uni, started that, got sat down and said, Phil, you're never going to finish commerce law. It's going to take you 20 years at the rate <laughs> you're going. So drop the law. So I dropped the law. And then nine years, it took me time. Got a Bachelor of Commerce, Finance and Accounting. was one of my parents' favorite achievements in my football career. And then now I'm doing an MBA. Um, I've just had a few short courses outside of that as well. So I've just tried to always just chip away and educate myself as much as possible. Do you think that your study has actually helped you, your playing career? Oh, I definitely think so. I, I actually think it teaches me discipline. That's probably the thing that I really enjoy about is that the easy option is to go and have another coffee, to go and watch another movie, go and do this fun stuff. But to say no to that and go home and do a three-hour essay or lecture or whatever it was has been really good. for It hurts at times. I'd rather be doing what some of my friends are doing, but I think it's added to my level of you know mental discipline, which I think is fundamental to success. The Cool Down is obviously a, a show about climate change and we, you know, we have these really important conversations um, with players finding out what their connection is to, to this issue and then we bring in an expert to sort of have a bit more of a, a look at what the solutions are to the issue. Um, as a, you know, the Vice President of the AFL Players Association, you know, you've got a lot of experience um, sort of dealing with some of the big issues that the players really care about, um, you know. AFL Players Association has taken a real leadership position in racism in sport. Um, I can think back to the marriage equality um, moment. Um, you know, just from your perspective, you know, how how can players use their voice and their platforms for things they really care about? Yeah, I think it's probably one of the more untapped areas in Australian sport, particularly. And I think there's multiple reasons for that. But I guess I started as a delegate in 2012 at the PA and then moved to the board, I think like 2016, 17, and then vice president since 2019. And along that journey, I've learned one thing, that there are lots of problems, some big, some small, um, and we get caught in the weeds sometimes. But I think what I've seen more and more recently are certain areas, topics, conversations have started getting out of the weeds and actually getting some time that they deserve and getting some light that they deserve. And for example, climate change is definitely one of that. Racism is definitely one of the, um, you know, marriage equality. All these things are actually, we're starting to get some really good shoots coming out because I think fundamentally what we haven't had for a long time in the playing is people that want to be strong advocates. You know, Jasper and you, Tom, are probably leading this charge here. And that's what it's needed, I think, to be able to jump because I think fundamentally the biggest challenge, I think, for athletes generally and even more so in Australia is there's obviously the, the famous saying, shut up and dribble for, for LeBron James. And I, and I guess for us, you know, we have this platform that we should use, but players are actually genuinely concerned about the backlash a lot of the time and also the lack of education. And I think that's a really big foil in people actually making a stand is that you know, I think a lot of my teammates, you know, we'll talk talk more deeply on climate change soon, would be like, hey, I care about my environment. I don't know anything. So I'm not going to stand at a press conference and the last question be like, actually, I'd like just to say something. We've got to do X, Y, Z and make that stand or they want to wear a you know different pair of socks and all these things. I just think I think fundamentally what we haven't created yet, and this is something that's very exciting, is that 
the opportunity and positioning of helping players say what they believe in and actually make some genuine cultural and society change. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful opportunity. You mentioned that some players that you speak to you know, do have concerns or do have things that they're really passionate about but don't feel comfortable to use their platforms. What are some of those conversations that you're actually hearing from players and you know, what are the sort of, you know, the topics that they're really concerned about? Yeah, I think I think when I, when you talk about anything, you, you know, let's, let's go climate obviously because we're on this podcast, but it's like, all right, hey, so 2020 was one of the worst starts of the year ever for Sydney. So we went bushfires, floods, COVID bushfires, floods. It was like over the course of three months, we had that. And and it's such a peculiar world that we live in that the bushfires were around Christmas and early in the news to, to 2019, 2020. And we were getting messages in our break saying, you're not allowed outside because the, the air quality is too poor because of all the, the ash and the smoke and all those things in the air. So we wouldn't be, so we have to go inside and, and train inside, which was just not much fun. And then we get back to training and I think it was our first or second day back after the Christmas break. We're about to go on the track. They do the report. Air's not safe. We go to the local gym and we run on treadmills. And the players are like, oh, this is so bad. Like, what are we doing? This, And then you're like, well, and this is where it's done. Like, you're like, oh, well, why do you think it, they're bushfires? And then they're like, oh, I haven't really thought about it. They just Because there's just a lack of... Reading. You get caught in your own, your own bubble as an athlete. Sometimes it's all about you and what you're doing. You got to make yourself everything right. And then as you get older, I think you sort of wind that lens. And I guess some of the conversations we have is, so last year the club did an initiative that everyone got given a keep cup. And you'd go to the, you'd go to the, um, come in and people would just go and get a normal takeaway cup. And you'd be like, oh, well, where's your keep cup? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I should do that. But it's in my locker and I just... Couldn't be bothered. And you're like, didn't clean it. Didn't clean it. All these things, and they end up becoming waste and all this. And but it's like, oh, but it's just one coffee. And so what happens is that they become aware of it per se. It's in their peripherals, but to actually make the execution change, to actually even just start with small steps, is probably the bit they get stuck with the most. I think, and that's probably one of the things I see is that when you actually delve into the conversation, um, you know, it was like, you know, it was like marriage equality. It was like everyone supported it. But no one was really saying anything because they're like, they just think it's normal. It's like, oh, it's just normal that we should care about the environment. Then you're like, all right, that's fine. But for some reason, well, marriage equality didn't happen until, you know, a few years ago. Climate change isn't at the front of the agenda. Like Australia keep on pushing back their time for it become carbon neutral. Like every year, like it's always a, a delay. And like, yeah, yeah, but like, what, what, what? I don't know anything about it. I don't want, that's probably the most common theme is it's, they are very much aware of it don't have the information to even have a stance. So if they get challenged to be like, oh no, climate change isn't a thing, they're not strong enough to be like push back mm. or they're not strong enough to actually make, you know, genuine habit changes because it's it's habit. Lifestyle is, especially for athletes, like what you do in the morning, every day is the same thing. So all you have to do is, you know, keep up such an easy, you know, example. It's just like bring a keep cup by five if you have to, you know, like have it and so you're, you're organized and you, you know, whatever it is. That's probably the conversation I have the most is like, well, just read this or mm. understand this. And like, I understand that you're one person out of, you know, almost 8 billion, but why not make yourself that little bit better? Because if you make a little change and the person next makes a little change, all of a sudden they affect someone else. We get some sort of compound interest in terms of actually changing behavior. And I guess that's probably the most resounding conversation I have is just pure. I know I've repeated myself a few times. It's like, 
they sort of are aware, they lack belief in in their opinions and their views, and that sort of stops them. And then their habits are just stuck 10, 15 years ago. I think it's a it's come up a few times through through what you were saying there, Phil, around having that conversation mm. and some of the challenges in that space. I think that's what we'll get to later with our with our next guest. Uh, but I'm really interested in your journey to becoming more aware of climate change. You know, we spoke off air, um, you know, about the fact that, you know, climate change, the environment wasn't something you were really mm. considering as a kid when you were growing up. You know, you were always worried about, you know, cricket getting washed out or it being too hot, but it wasn't really, climate change wasn't really an issue for you. So was there a moment or was, you know, there something that sort of, you know, sparked you to think about this more in your life? It was funny when we discussed it, Tom, I- I almost, you know, we were touching on that, but I was a bit ashamed because I was like, for my first part of my life, like I've lived a very privileged life. I've been very fortunate. I went to great schools the whole way through. And I never really thought about it at all. It just wasn't a conversation topic. Um, I lived in cities my whole life. I didn't interact with a lot of farmers until I moved to Adelaide. And then one of my best mates has a huge farm out called Altalpa in, in Broken Hill. And we'd just chat and then he'd just be in drought for three, four years. And even that didn't really trigger me. It probably wasn't until I got into the AFL system. Um, I think people spoke more. I just feel like in my childhood, I didn't read the newspaper enough. I didn't do anything. I just literally played sport and hung out with my family. And that was about it. And then, you know, probably the biggest turning point was meeting my wife, um, probably six, seven, eight years ago. And, um, you know, she, she's passionate. She loves the greens and, you know, in that area of her family. And she really educated me quite a bit. I, I think I've always led a relatively climate conscious lifestyle. However, the big shift has been her educating me about how it all looks, what it all is. I also, you know, really acknowledge the people that have made strong stances in the public and that's actually brought it to my attention more. And, I, and you know, as I said to you, I actually do have regrets that I wasn't more aware earlier. Just because, you know, you know, I'm just one man, but, you know, if you can make minutiae changes along the way to your life and even other people along the way, you can actually make a difference. Um, and there are bigger things at play. But I guess that was probably the thing for me. I reflect on my journey is that it, I've always been cognizant and very open to the conversation. But, you know, probably fundamentally selfish that I'd be worried about myself and my own career and not really worried about the bigger picture. Um, and, you know, that's something that I wish I could have changed. But that's why now, like, I'm very interested I read where I can. I probably don't know where to read, and we can touch on that later. But um, it's something that I, I do care about, and you know, a lot of that I thank to my wife. You mentioned those um, those club conversations you have with your teammates, but you've also said to me before um, that you might have a, a tricky conversation with somebody that is maybe passing off, um, you know, an extreme weather event as like, oh no, that always mm. happens. Actually, we've had that before. Um, and some difficulty in actually then progressing that conversation or being able to have that conversation about climate. Um, you know, how do you feel in those conversations in those moments where you know you get yeah. challenged? Or well, incredibly frustrated because uh, I'm a very logical guy, and I'm just like, for example, I'm like, how are we having three Laninas in a row? Like to me, like it's just like, well, that doesn't make much sense in my in my mind. Why are we having more bushfires, more tornado? Why are we having all these events? Why we're having hotter days, wetter years, like all these things. In my mind, I'm like, well, why? And then you'll go and talk to someone generally older, and they're like, oh no. But if you look back, you know, two thousand years, there's always this this cyclical nature to weather patterns, and you know, we're at this point. And to me, I'm like, well, they're obviously in a position in their mind that they can get information or data to support their view, just because that's the point they want to support. And I guess for me, I get to a point where I'm just frustrated. I'm like, well. 
Yeah, but like from my point of view, what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what I'm reading is that there is a thing. But the problem is it's supported by like the way up there. It's like when Donald Trump walks around and says climate change isn't a thing, well, like it gets reported everywhere. And if you and if you really want to support that, you just go, well, Donald Trump said that and he got some bloke to feed him a message that told him this, that told him, and then they just repeat that. And you're like, well, now I'm just getting to a point where it's just like me versus you what you want to believe and what I believe. And I find that incredibly frustrating because I don't have the skill set to debunk their theories and that rather than just say, well, I'm getting told by experts that it is. I'm seeing stuff and my life is looking like this, yet you're telling me that, oh, this is normal for a period of time 2,000 years ago that you didn't even live in. Yeah, I find that very frustrating, Tom, and I I would really love to have some more tools in my kit bag to just push back a little bit. Well, I've heard you talk about, you know, players not being confident to talk about this issue in the media, Um, heard your frustration about, you know, having conversations with people that, you know, maybe, you know, have opinions rather than facts. And it's a great segue to our guest. Throughout this podcast, we've heard countless times that we need to protect what we have now before it's lost. Disrupting the flow of money into coal, gas and oil is critical to limiting the impacts of climate change. Your bank could be investing billions of dollars into the fossil fuel industry, but we as individuals have a choice. And together we can create big change with just one action by putting our money where it matters. Bank Australia is an ethical bank that doesn't fund harmful industries. Join us and over 180,000 Australians who've made the switch. Search Bank Australia Solutions. One of you know my absolute favourite people in the climate movement and someone I've had the great privilege of spending some, some time with. Um, Dr. Dr. Rebecca Huntley is one of Australia's foremost researchers on social trends. She heads up her own research and consultancy firm, working closely with climate and environment NGOs, government, business, uh, on climate change strategy and communication. She's the author of numerous books, including How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference, actually the first climate book that I read. And she's the chair of an advisory board of Australian Parents for Climate Action. She was an adjunct senior lecturer at the School of Social Sciences at the University of New South Wales. She holds degrees in law and film studies and a PhD in gender studies. Rebecca Huntley, thank you so much for joining us on The Cool Down. So great to be here. So great to be here. You know, you are an expert in how to talk about climate change. You you wrote the book on it. I did. Um, (laughs) But we always start our conversations on The Cool Down with our human connections to climate change and you know, how our sort of lives and, or in your case, careers sort of took us down this path. In the first chapter of your book, you actually talk about um, how the green girls of climate action inspired you. Can yeah. you talk to me about sort of the youth climate movement and sort of what you were talking about in that chapter? Yeah. So it was, look, it was, it was wonderful to listen to Phil talk about his life because we're not, we, we probably don't have a lot in common, but I grew up in South Australia as well. My dad was actually the dean of law school at um, Adelaide University as well. So I, I did, I did finish a law school degree. Well my, my AFL career did not interrupt my <laughs> law degree, unfortunately. So I grew up in South Australia and I remember those hot days, right? Where you can't actually it's South Australian hot days where you're not allowed to leave the house. You're not allowed to go to school. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I grew up throughout my life, actually quite late in life, coming to the climate movement. And I too feel, felt a bit like I can't believe it's taken me this long to arrive here. But that's not an uncommon story. 
It's not that you don't care about climate or environment. Just a couple of things happen to you to make you kind of realise, actually, this is much more important than I than I kind of recognised previously. Um, and so for me, there were a few moments on the pathway towards a big aha moment around climate. One of them was taking my first daughter, before I had my, my twins, my first daughter, um, when she was about four, snorkelling in... Um, the Great Barrier Reef, and I remember, you know, you kind of see all the reef that's been affected by climate. You believe that it's been affected by climate. There was a bit of a moment where I was watching her kind of swim in the water and, you know, when you do things with your kids, you hope that they'll, A, they'll remember and one day look back and think, oh, wasn't it great that my parents did that with me? And B, you hope that they'll do it with their kids. And then I kind of thought, oh, Maybe she won't be able to do this. Maybe when she, maybe she won't even want to have children in 20 or 25 years' time because she's worried about climate change. Like I had that moment. Or even if she does, she'll be visiting the Great Barrier Reef like we visit Pompeii as a civilization that once existed but we'll never have access to. So there was that moment, but I still kind of sailed on. And then it was the climate strikes that really made me recognise that there was an entire generation of young people who were concerned enough to be that active. And it was not just kind of them wanting to get out of school <laughs> um, because if they were, if they wanted to get out of school, they'd just go and <laughs> they'd just go to the, you'd go shopping and do whatever young people do, make videos for TikTok. Um, that, you know, if you really want to get out of school, you don't necessarily go and protest. And that, for me, was a real recognition. That's something um, that I almost had an ethical and moral responsibility to do whatever, to take whatever I'm doing, to use whatever voice I have, um, uh, to advocate for the things that they were advocating for. So that was the kind of beginning of that that journey. We've sort of, you know, I've spoken to so many different people and I've been really privileged to, to have lots of different conversations with people in the climate movement. And, you know, there's, there is this sort of sense that, you know, once you see this problem, you, you can't look away. Yeah. It's called toxic, they call it the term toxic knowledge. Once you've got it, everything you see is about climate change. Yeah. You can't escape it. And so, you know, how has that sort of driven you and your work and, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> that whole sort of time, you know, amount of time Look, and sort of, you know, time in your career that yeah. you're actually dedicated to this. Look, it's it's interesting. I think one of the things I was really lucky to do, because as soon as this thing happened, I decided, and generally the way I work through things is I write about it to kind of work through it in my head. Um, so writing the book was one of the first things I did. I, I got to go to the Climate Reality Conference um, in in Brisbane with Al Gore and a whole lot of other fantastic activists from around Australia. I love that. It was my first kind of pure environmental conference I'd ever been to. And I thought, oh, you know, I don't really see myself as a greenie. Like I don't, I don't like Birkenstocks and, you know, I don't want, I don't even know what matcha is. It just, <laughs> whatever or whatever, you know, and it's like, I don't want to eat any of that or have anything to do with that. Have you bought but, the Birkenstocks? <laughs> I refuse to buy, but this is the, I normally like high heels, but you know, at that my age, they're quite, I can't wear them all the time. No, I do not, gonna, you do not have to buy Birkenstocks. You don't, you don't have to eat hemp. Anyway, so now I walked into this conference and I thought I'm going to meet no one like me. It's going to be environmentalist. And it wasn't. It was just such an extraordinary spectrum of people. So I did that. And then I also started writing the book. And um, writing the book allowed me to talk to 
people who'd been in the climate movement for decades. And one of the things they say is that once you, it's a little bit like the mafia, once you're in, you can't get out. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? But they also said you really need to manage your own um, mental health as you work in climate because it can be so, it can be overwhelming and it can be something that you can't escape. So a big part of managing my, um, the kind of feelings you have in the climate movement about everything that needs to be done and when you hear, when you hear the science is just being active and thinking about small things that you can do and scale up. So that's a big part of it. So even though I kind of earn my living researching how people feel about climate change, I love working with organisations like yours because I think you're doing fantastic things. So that's where you get the energy and joy because it's going to be a kind of um, a long a long road. Um, and the other thing you can never lose in the climate movement is your sense of humour. Occasionally it feels like gallows humour, but, you know, your sense of humour about things because... Nobody really wants to join a movement where everybody has to be very serious and very scared all the time. And to your point about the keeper cups, it's really interesting. I have all these keeper cups. I mostly remember them. I occasionally forget them. When I would go into the ABC, I would and I'd forget one. I'd be terrified that Craig Rewcastle would kind of jump out, <laughs> jump out of an office and like point at me and everything. And I think also part of that is that we're all on a journey of learning. And of and of not doing things perfectly, and um, you know, and that is that is that is okay, right? And we and the other thing I think too around that is that the people who are doing nothing on climate change, who are not so much nothing, are actively stopping action on climate change, are not bothered at all about whether they remember a keeper cup or not. <laughs> The fact is we're all trying and we're all learning and we're all getting better and that's what matters more rather than shaming somebody if they decide to go and fly to one place or another. Like that's not how we're going to move forward. Yeah, sometimes you start bringing a keep cup and then everyone pitches you as the keep cup cop. Right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that can be a stressful moment, especially if you forget one day, do I have a coffee now? Can I can I get away with it? But, um, no, Phil, I, I'm actually really interested to ask you, um, you know, you were – Sort of, you've sort of mentioned that you weren't overly active in climate action um, and it's really sort of the concerns with, of your wife and, you know, the conversations that you have together. I think it's really gutsy, actually, to, to come on a, a podcast when you, you haven't been, you know, involved and you want to learn more uh, and you're prepared to have that conversation, um, especially in your role as, you know, Vice President of the, the Players Association. Um, why is it important that players use their voice and use their platform? And, you know, how are we able to, you know, make the most of this opportunity that we have as players? Yeah, I think one of the big things I've always tried to be is curious. And I think that's probably why I'm here is the fact that um, I don't know enough. I'm willing to learn more. But also I think that, you know, it's an interesting thing, football. Like when, when you're playing, people are interested in you. And, I, and, I, and it's just part and parcel. Like, as I said, when I was 10, I went and bought this DVD of Shane Crawford did this video about one year and, it, and I loved it. And anything he said, I would have listened to. And I guess being a fan growing up, I sort of realized that there was a platform for players. And I guess through my career, I probably don't, you know, it's hard when you're, the, when you're me. Like, I don't feel like I've got a platform per se. I, I have places where I can talk, but I, I'm not the best player. I'm not the coolest player. I'm not the fan favorite player for a small club, all these things. But I still think I would have some voice. But that's why I'm like, there are players with bigger voices 
And to me, that's an opportunity that not many people get. So if you've got that position, because it's hard to influence people. Fundamentally, leadership's all about can you influence people in, you know, in, in a positive way. And you know, some people say they're not leaders and all these things. But fundamentally, it's like the role model discussion, I think, is like it's a silly conversation to have. When you're a sportsman, 99% of the time you're going to be a role model in some capacity. It's just unfortunately, you know, the cards is part of it. It's part of the, it's part of the journey because people look at – like kids look up to you. It doesn't, mm-hmm. They're not going to just pick and choose like, oh, he said he doesn't want to be a role model, so therefore I don't care what he does. It just doesn't work like that in my view anyway. So I, that's what I think for, for players and all athletes that is, is you have actually have an opportunity that you can make – it might be a minutiae difference. Like it might be a little thing. But you do have that opportunity. And it's like, what do you lend yourself to? And that's something that I've probably thought more and more of more recently is that while I'm playing and people do listen to me, how can I influence them? Hopefully in a, in a positive manner and not go so far from who I am. You know, I'm probably not going to all of a sudden become the keep cop, cup, keep cup cop everywhere <laughs> and run around with matcher and all these things. That's probably not me. But what I will do is hopefully learn more that I can have some informed conversations and create some change. And I guess that's something that I want to do and make sure that I continue to make good decisions in my own life that I'm actually, you know, helping, helping the situation. I just think all players have got the right to educate themselves and realize they've got a platform that if they actually care about something, that the opportunity presents itself. So I do want to I want to address that in two ways because I have been interested to see the flack that um, sports people are getting on talking about climate and how I would address that is it, address that in two ways. Most people who are professional sports people would be under thirty, would you say? When we cut the data about the public sentiment data by age, Australians under thirty about 50% of them are alarmed on climate change. If we add anybody over 30, it goes down to 24. Mm. The percentage of people under 30, Australians under 30, who we would describe as dismissive about climate change, dismiss the science, is 1%. So the vast majority of Australians under 30 are extremely worried about climate change or concerned about it. So actually by voicing your concern as as Australians under 30 and as role models and as leaders, you're actually the voice of the opinions of your generation. So that's the first thing I would say. So to expect um, professional sports people to completely and always stay silent about the, the issue of their generation is unrealistic. The second thing I'd always say, particularly to kind of anxious people in the sporting world who might be administrators and all the rest of it. If I said to you, there is an issue that fundamentally affects the future of your game, that is the biggest issue for your future players and fans, and main fact stop, all the young people playing your game, would you be worried about that? Yes, it is climate change. So, I mean, when we were thinking, Mm. and when you were talking about waking up as a kid and kind of peeking through to see the weather... And I was already engaged with climate change at the time, but during the Black Summer Fires, um, um, all my kids played different kinds of sport. They've all got asthma. They just couldn't even leave the house. It wasn't even they just couldn't play summer soccer. They could not leave the mm. house. And I remember one of my kids said, when is this going to end, Mum? When can mm. we go out and run? And I'm like, oh, my God, we couldn't even go to the outdoor pool. That is going to really affect whether you're going to be okay with your kids running out you know, doing a kind of running sport 
Nobody really wants to play AFL. And so mm. <laughs> the thought of indoor AFL makes me very sad, right? So, so we've got two things. We've got professional sports people not ignoring the biggest issue of their generation. And of anybody who cares about sport, caring about not just the future of sport, the current nature of play. So I think that for me, I, I get that people don't necessarily, they kind of feel a bit antsy or concerned that sports people will use their platform to talk about all kinds, you know, any kind of issue. I don't really have a problem with that. But at, the, at a pragmatic level, this is where we are on the issue of sport and climate. They're so tied together about how we, about, and whether you're a fan, whether you're for, whether you're, <laughs> whether you're mm. a professional sports person, whether you're a sponsor, because that's the other thing I would say to people who are interested in sport. You look around the grounds of any sporting place that has, you know, different sponsors, they're all making commitments, right, to net zero. They're all doing all kinds of things. And and so that you're actually even getting the, the sponsorship and corporate sphere aligning with a need to do these kinds of things. So I actually think this isn't radical. This is going to become business as usual pretty quickly. You touched a bit on your research, especially yeah. in that first yeah. part. I think I might try and get that back to that later, but I, mm. I'm really interested in, in you know, we've heard from Phil about how, you know, players do have an ability and in, in some ways a responsibility to talk about the things that they care about. Um, and we've also heard from Phil that sometimes players feel like they don't know enough. Yeah. So, you know, the book is how to talk about climate change yeah. in a way that makes a difference. How can players talk about climate change? What do they need to yeah. know? And, and what stories and, you know, information can they put across? Yeah, so I suppose the first thing I, I need to get across that would I hopefully make you feel better about this is that um, <laughs> information doesn't change people's minds all the time. People who are determined to believe that climate change isn't happening, all the information in the world is not going to change their views. The important thing to know is people that are completely resistant to the climate um, science, like absolutely dismiss it, or don't believe in the climate solutions are about 9% of the population. So if you if you stumble in your life upon somebody who says, no, 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 these, these extreme weather events have got nothing to do with climate and 2,000 years ago, you know, this is what's happening. I smile, nod, <laughs> talk about Netflix. You know what I mean? Mm. Because actually, first of all, unless that, unless that person is the Prime Minister of Australia. <laughs> if they're just somebody that you meet, I think you can listen and you might talk, but I, I wouldn't put an enormous amount of your energy into mm. convincing them because they are almost unconvincible. And I say that after five years of doing focus groups with people like that, putting information in front of them. Do you trust the CSIRO? Sure. Do you trust them when they say that? No, I don't trust them. <laughs> Do you trust the Bureau of Meteorology? Oh, yeah. Do you trust them when they say, no, no. What about NASA? Oh, yeah, yeah, no. So, you know, actually, mm. the, the first thing to remember is just pure information doesn't convince people. So those kinds of people who are just resistant to the message, I would generally smile, nod, talk about Netflix. There are the vast majority of Australians are the people who aren't alarmed. The vast majority sit in, I would say, a understandably confused way about what is actually happening, but are open to the conversation. And that's when you have the conversation with them. You actually don't need to know an enormous amount about the science. And you also don't need to pretend that you're an expert in the science. I often say, look, I've 
read a lot of the science. I know a lot of the scientists. I myself aren't a scientist. But if 99% of all of these people say it's happening and the CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology, I kind of need to trust them. But what I believe in more than anything else is that the solutions to climate change are going to help us all. Cheap, renewable energy is going to make the air cleaner, right? And it's going to, in the end, very soon, be cheaper than coal, oil and gas. Having more trees is going to be great, great for drawdown, great for carbon, but also pretty and where I'm going to walk my cavoodle. <laughs> and if I didn't have like a place to walk my cavoodle during lockdown, I would have, you know, pulled my hair out or whatever. Like there are lots of other ways that we can convince people that climate action is a benefit, right? So I think that, a bit, so a big part of it is people who don't want to be convinced are not going to be convinced by you arguing because if they were going to be convinced, they'd actually be convinced by the climate scientists with people with PhDs. Do you think our personal stories and our personal connections Absolutely. to people, places, football, is that an important way in for, for some important. people? important. And, and Tom, and you would say with all the kind of, you know, interaction you've had with groups like yours, how those personal stories of I what this wasn't on my radar, then something happened and it was, and now this is ha- what I'm doing as a response to it. People can't help, can't dismiss that like they can dismiss sci- reports about science that they don't really understand. Where I often feel it's most powerful is um, is people that work, you know, directly with the land. You know, you you meet farmers that look very much like, you know, Barnaby Joyce's drinking mates. That's <laughs> that kind of say, look, you know, I'm fourth generation, you know, sheep farmer from South Australia, always voted National Party, don't like greenies, but I can tell you the climate's changing and um, climate change is real and we've got to do something about it. And, um, oh, and by the way, the whole farm is, you know, run by solar energy, so that's a good thing, you know, that kind of thing. Or speaking out against fracking. So, so a big part and, re- and reason why the voices of people like feel are so important is that forget about the 9% of people who just won't be convinced. Most people are there to be convinced, but they do need the right messenger, right? If they were going to be convinced by the traditional messages of climate change, so, you know, greenies with Birkenstocks, they would have already been there. We need to hear from all kinds of people telling all kinds of stories so we can see ourselves in those stories of transformation and we can see ourselves in those stories of hope and action. For me, it's the same for me. Like I was, knew climate change was a thing, wanted governments to do something about it, but it was seeing young men and women like my eldest daughter and her friends that made me go, oh, yeah, actually, this is as, as important a thing that I do for her as making sure she's brushed her teeth and gone to school I have an obligation to make sure that all of this effort and all of that I'm putting into being a good parent means that she grows up to be in a livable world where she can decide to go to law school and drop out to be an AFL player. That's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but, Maybe. You know, but that she actually has the the room and the hope for a trajectory to think about what she wants to do with her life, you know, and that's a huge obligation as a parent. Well, because... Because I always think about headwind, and that and that to me, in terms of you know metaphorically, is so when you stand in front of uh, let's say the press conference, you do a press conference, and you tack on something about like oh, 
hope this world doesn't get any hotter because training is that hot at the moment. We need to do something about it. But you say, let's say you say a comment like that. I would presume that the 9% that will not change their mind are above the age of 30. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 <laughs> They're above the age of 60 generally. <laughs> but fundamentally, like most of the people that are going to come after athletes are over the age of 30. And, and, and this is the biggest test is, especially for athletes. So athletes make money from playing contracts endorsements. They get, and they, those companies get money from eyeballs. So we've got this conflict of, we want to get paid. I can't annoy people because we need money to come into the game and this. So if I start making waves and people are unhappy, then that fundamentally, I'll get in trouble because we need sponsors. You know, if you said something really aggressive yeah. in this, and we, anyway, so what I'm getting at is, for fundamentally, you need strength of character because the loudest wheel gets the most oil. So when I when I pick up the paper and Andrew Bolt's written some article, people read that, and I hear about that hypothetically. Yeah. I've got to keep moving forward, and I, I'm thinking about you know the story yeah. of your daughter. Like she needs strength of character that if she takes a day off school to go and do the march, her principal might be grumpy at hypothetically. Yeah. Position of power, telling her what to do. It's very easy to just go back in your shell and be like, oh, put my head out, got the little clip on the head, yeah. I'll come back. Yeah. And I guess one thing I see, especially for athletes, is you put your head out in Australia, they'll get you. <laughs> and that strength of character just to keep on doing it is really important. And we need to really build up our youth and everyone in general to actually be able to keep fronting up because eventually, you know, the cheap shots will – because, you know, you go on Twitter and that and they go, oh, Phil, that no. Like, Pat Cum I feel incredibly bad no, no, for no, Pat Cummins exact, at the moment. Exactly right. So, so that's a really good point. The reason why my daughter could do all of that and her friends is strength in numbers, mm. right? I mean, and also don't forget that a lot of – I mean, I always forget because, you know, I, I think everybody's my age and not everybody's 50. You know, I go and meet the, the principal at my daughter's school and she's 10 years younger than me. So – the reality is, is there there will be a point where almost to, it'll be the opposite. There's a social license to talk about this. So, but I think what we are so we we put our sports people on a pedestal, and then we just can't wait to pull them down. So I think the most difficult thing, and I think you know I've done a little bit of work with Pat. We obviously went did some work, went to a conference together for cricket for climate. Is there's an enormous amount of pressure when you put your head up and said that to also play a perfect game. And the moment, you know what I mean, the moment you don't play a perfect game and, and in you know, we, we all have our bad days as sports people. I say we, we don't mean no, me, I, like I mean it. you. <laughs> um, suddenly it becomes about something else. It becomes, oh, well, if he wasn't so focused on climate, Correct. maybe yep. he'd, you know, you know, be doing better. So I think that's the pressure. But I also think the pressure on for him is is that he's the he's the one head, mm. right? So what we actually need is multiple stories around him, support around all of those um, men and women who are prepared to talk, and we need to normalise it. We also need to be cognizant of the fact that the the and this is absolutely true that the no voices, the Andrew Bolts, do not represent a silent majority. They don't even present present represent a majority. They don't even represent a double digit of the community. Mm -hmm. They represent 9% of the views of the community diminishing. The every year that go every year that this cohort of under 30s get older and older and older, these people get pushed back. So when you said when I pick up a newspaper and read Andrew Bolt, 
The only person that says that sentence is a 75-year-old man. <laughs> because <laughs> A, they're picking up a paper, B, they're reading Andrew Bolt. That's not to say that that work isn't, that kind of denialism doesn't damage people, like isn't damaging to the discussion because people think that they represent a larger group. So if you said to a large group, if you said to a group of people, what percentage of the community don't think climate change is a thing? They might say 10%, 20%, 30%. It's 9%. 9% and mm. decreasing. So they're a minority. They're a tiny minority. They're old. Their knees are bad. Mm. <laughs> they, they, they are going to go. We are, they're going to be out. They're already outnumbered and they're going to be even more. Rebecca, we've touched on this a few times throughout the show, but I think it's a, a really great point now to, to chat about the climate compass and, and who these different groups of Australians are and, and you know, what they think, feel, um, how they act on climate change how reachable they are with climate messaging. I know that's a lot of what your research is focused on. Yeah, so I, I, it's been now been going for a couple of years and it basically is a large-scale survey that that sorts Australians into groups depending on how they feel about climate. I always say for some people it's a little bit like the sorting hat from um, you know <laughs> Harry Potter. It's like you come and it kind of decides where you're going to go. The important, like I mentioned it before, the important thing about the climate compass is it shows that about 26% of Australians are alarmed about climate, right? Most of them are young people, um, not all of them, but it's like a large percentage of the community. And another big chunk are concerned, another big uh, chunk are alert. So we're talking about, you know, 60, 65% of the, of the community are somewhere between concerned and alarmed about climate. The other cohorts, the other groups, except for people who are dismissive, might not be kind of, they might be very much in the, oh, I don't know if this weather's connected to climate, but really enthusiastic about the climate solutions, know that that we need to move towards renewable energy, know that we need to protect our natural environment, are worried about extreme weather events and wonder if it's connected to climate, even if they're not sure. So again, if you can, if you, if you, um, if you take them into account, people who we would describe a cautious or a bit doubtful about climate, they can still be really enthusiastic about the climate solutions. We need to reduce waste, right? We need to have much more of a circular economy. We need to make sure that we don't use plastics as much as we do. We need to eat local food um, and all of those kinds of things. So the community is persuadable. We spend so much time on this tiny vocal minority, mm. mainly because they've got some pretty big megaphones in the media. I I try and ignore them and try and think about all the reasonable people you, you can engage with. And of course, all of a lot of these people love sport. I mean, it's something that that I didn't really think was actual when when we started this that 91% of Australians are reachable with climate yep, messages. Absolutely. It's a very very small group that that we can't reach. Um, this is a a question that we ask everyone that comes on the show and I'll start with you Phil. What what gives you hope? in the climate space? Well, I just think for me personally, it's the fact that it's more present all the time. And I, and I think for me is I almost don't go through a day now without hearing, seeing or talking about climate in some capacity. And there is an undertone there at worst, an undertone of, hey, this isn't going well or we need to be better or whatever it is. There, there is an element in every day that I live now that it's there. And I think that's actually... Well, one, it's great for my journey to, to get to a point where I actually see it all the time. But two, I think it's going to start dripping into lots more people's lives. And I think that's really important just for that level of cognizance. Because the thing I was going to say before was just like trying to get a level of urgency 
on a matter that's sort of moving at a glacial pace to an extent in terms of like real life, like day to day, like some of these things are so far ahead. The fact that for me, I get hope is the fact that the fact that I get reminded every day and I'm hoping other people start getting reminded every day to help change habits gives me hope. My mind's exactly the same thing. You know, when people say what gives you hope, I think I see different people than I would have seen 10 years ago talking about it, doing things about it as well. Um, but what is also exciting is that the solutions are there for us. You know, the solutions, and, and many of those solutions are grown in Australia. Things like the seaweed that they're starting to grow in Tasmania that you can add to the feedlots of beef to stop them burping methane, and they create more beef. Mm. <laughs> so you get mm. a bit more steak, less climate change. And that's an Australian invention that's going to revolutionise um, agriculture in terms of climate. That's just smart things we're doing here that create jobs, create solutions. And you hear when you're in the climate movement, we hear and see all those things all the time. We finish the show every time asking how we can tackle climate change. Uh, Bill, I'll start with you. You know, how can we, particularly through the lens of you know athletes, how how can we tackle climate change? Well, I think it's being yeah very aware of your own behaviour, and then it's like, well, can I continue to educate and tidy up my own backyard in terms of how what my actions and behaviour and habits are like, and then while I'm trying to just make a little bit of a difference, can I help? someone else just make a little difference in their own life and see what kind of domino effect we can get from that. Yeah, that's great. And and Rebecca, probably more for, for our listeners, but you know, how, could, how can we collectively tackle climate change? Can you tell me how you tackle somebody? Like I've, always, like how, I've often watched it and like, <laughs> how do you, no, but do, how do you just launch this? I mean, I'm, I'm, don't worry, I'm a Swans fan. I watch it, but I think, what do you have to do in First of all, I'm mean, interesting. When you tackle somebody, mm. what do you have to say? Do you have to say something in your no. head? It no, just no. happens instinctively. <laughs> For me, I'm going to get you. Mine's, mine's like, no, no, don't, no, but yeah. how? Because you can tackle people in different stepped. ways. Like, what do you? How do you do it? Like, if, how? Depends. Would you t- if I've turned oh. and they're sprinting at me, I'm like, I'm going to roll with him. Oh, is that not right? Get, but if I've got a good shot, I'm like, I'm going to go through him. So say the thing you said for for if they're coming, coming at, at me, you, I'll just roll with them. So I'll hold on and hopefully get them to the ground. But if they're okay. just sort of standing there, I'm just going to go absolutely through them. Okay. That's a real, that's an interesting metaphor. How do you tackle climate change in terms of how you communicate it? One of the things that we have to do when we have to connect climate action with the values and the mindset of people when we're talking to them. And that means you've got to meet people where they are. So if the thing that really matters to whatever that matters, whatever matters to them, you've got to understand it and you've got to dovetail your comments and your communication about climate change in a way that fits their trajectory, right? And then you can kind of wrestle <laughs> wrestle mm. them to your position, not because you're like, you have to agree with me. It's like, let me understand where you're coming from. Let's go with that. And then I, you can generally get them across the line if you find a way to connect the things that matter to them to climate action. So that's the, I mean, just having never tackled anybody um, you know, kind of professionally in public, <laughs> never really known how you do it. So that's that's what I think. I think part a big part of how you cl- tackle climate change is find ways to connect climate action with the things that people value, and it's easy. It's kind of not that hard to do, particularly if you're good at listening. Thanks, Rebecca, and thanks, Phil. Thanks to both of you for joining the cool down. It's been great to have a chat. 
Um, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm your host, Tom Campbell, and thanks for listening to The Cooldown, a footy for climate podcast. The Cooldown is produced by Sam Dalton, and audio is edited by Darcy Parkinson from Producey. Episode research is done by me, Jasper Pittard, and Aloise Witkowski.